Hey guys, it's Ryan with Between the Liars, and we have a very special treat for you. Josh and I made a guest appearance on the Agree to Disagree show, hosted by our friend Luigi C. Now we compare Canadian and American politics, covering a wide range of topics, including healthcare, capitalism, and international policies. Don't go away. We've got all that and more coming up. What is up, everybody, and welcome to episode 63 of the Agree to Disagree show, where we discuss current events, politics, pop culture, and social issues. I hope you are all doing fine and dying tonight. Guys, if you appreciate the show and you want to show your support, it's very simple. Go on at Agree to Disagree show on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, like, share, and subscribe it, and any of the platforms as well on Spotify, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a Google Podcasts. Share it with your friends, with your family, anybody that you think that would enjoy it. So without further ado, uh, this evening, tonight's guests are my uh, podcast, American Brothers. I was a guest on their podcast a few weeks ago to, uh, to give them a Canadian perspective on our now famous Freedom Convoy and the general uh, Canadian politics uh, landscape. And tonight they're reciprocating the the favor. So please welcome the co-hosts of Between the Liars podcast, political podcast where they debate the major ideas and assumptions underpinning current news, events, and policies. Here we go. Let's bring them onto the screen. Good evening, gentlemen. Ryan good and evening. Josh. Hello, How are hello. You? I'm doing great. How about you guys? Doing good. I'm hanging in this message's almost over. That's always a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> guys, thanks so much for doing this tonight. I had a had a blast on your show a couple of weeks back discussing uh what's going on in the great white north and uh, especially political and uh with our freedom convoy and we've made news across the across the pond and um so i really appreciate you guys doing the show tonight yeah thank you for having us i'm i'm ready to have a great time Yes, I know. When I when I sent when I sent you guys the um, the topics, Ryan was all uh, was was all excited. So, <laughs> okay. So before we get into that, guys, talk to me a little bit about your podcast, how it came about, uh, what is it about, and uh, who's involved. Sure. So uh, we are, most of us knew each other from college on the speech and debate circuit. That's where a lot of our guests come from, or they are friends of theirs, so maybe two degrees away. Uh, but Josh and Marcelo and I went to undergrad together and competed on the speech and debate circuit. And then Austin popped in. Uh, he went to the same college as me as well. And uh, we decided during the pandemic that we wanted to have a podcast. It was a good decision. A lot of people made it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, and, and I think that kind of the driving idea behind this is that whenever you listen to political talk shows, you probably get sucked into an echo chamber. Both sides are guilty of it. And there's very seldom a civil discourse that takes place. So being of a speech and debate background where that's kind of a requirement is you heavily disagree. But I mean, look at Josh and I, while they disagree, still very good friends to this day going on, what, seven, eight years later? Yeah, I've, it's, I've had eight years. of This is my eighth year of speech and debate. Fall will be sort of my ninth year in it. So, yep coach now and everything. So we, we just wanted to bring that to our podcast and really bring just a discussion based where people can come and know that they're going to get both sides. And and honestly, with, with the spectrum of, of political people we have on here, 
you, you don't just get separated off into Republican, Democrat, and you've got people kind of all over. I think it also stems from, at least from like Ryan and I's perspective, we both stayed in academia, we both work at universities, and both of us, our you know, concentration of study is communication, you know, from different angles, but we fundamentally are, are just both fascinated by how do these social interactions play out and where does it come in? So it plays into both the idea of civility, but then also understanding of the role of communication and civil democracy and how that plays into it. And so helping to kind of bring even the principles of our own study that form and shape speech and debate help. Because I think both Ryan and I would agree, if, if more political discourse was like debate, it would be better if not great, like, don't get me wrong. Like but it would be better. <laughs> oh, don't, no debater out there, like get any weird ideas about that one. Like, let's well, not, we not exaggerate. Even, right. <laughs> right, right <laughs> like we'll even have episodes where we pull up a bill and we're like, okay, look, like they're either for it or against it. They decided that they didn't even debate it. Most people don't know what's in X bill that we've decided to talk yeah. about today. We're going to do what the politicians are supposed to be doing. We're going to have that debate and just really let that organically shift people's thoughts instead of just, Oh yes, this person signed off on it. So check I'm for or check I'm not. Well, see, there's okay, so many good things there. So first thing I want to say is that now for people that don't know, because I've listened to your podcast, obviously, mm-hmm. so and there's only two of the four, right? We're missing yes. half <laughs> uh, between the liars. So right in the between, we're missing. So what what would people expect when when listening to your podcast or watching your show on YouTube? Uh, where do you guys lie, the four of you, in terms of the spectrum, or how do you guys approach it differently? Sure. So usually, if if we get the appropriate distribution of the guests and we had our say and schedules don't interfere, then we're going to have two people who lean more to the to the right of the center and two people who lean to the left. We try to balance that. That's not always the case, but that's kind of what we shoot for. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, we try to make it so that there's kind of someone who's more on the outliers on both sides, people who are two more to the center. And what we'll do is we will take a topic and we assume people don't know about it. And so we do a very brief rundown. We want to gear this towards the people who might shy away from politics because it's stressful or because it's confusing or they don't have the time. And and we want to try to make it easy to understand. So we start there and then we dive into deeper concepts. Like Josh brings a lot of like the rhetorical devices and the analysis and I'll bring more of the practical side and, and each person's background feeds into what do we think about mm. this and how do we discuss that? So that leads me to my other question is why is it that whether it be here in Canada or in the United States that if I'm able to do it with certain guests and you guys certainly do it on your show of having um, a civil discourse, a civil uh, conversation, a civil debate and a question could be made, do our politicians really debate, guys, honestly? Do they really debate? <laughs> right? So it goes back to what Josh was saying before. But that we could, we could even talk about that. So why is it everyone understands the importance of this, that everyone should have their voice? And I've always said that if you don't understand, and there's certain things I don't understand or agree with, but I want to try to understand your point of view. Why do you see it that way? Why can't more people, why are we so quick to shut down what we don't understand or we don't agree with today? This is what I'm, this is at the, at the deepest core of me right now is scaring me the most. Why? I think there's no grand easy answer to this question. So I would even say there's a lot of current political communication related and across a variety of different subfields, even over in the fields of like psychology and sociology that looks at mm-hmm. kind of explaining this particular phenomenon. I think in particular what it has uh, to do now is a lot of the identities that people have for themselves, their, politi- their political identities get centered around 
being attached to a given political party, maybe not even give it around being attached to certain political values, but being attached to a political party as if it was a brand. There's a really particular um, Frankfurt School uh, Marxist philosopher by the name of Walter Benjamin, and he put forward of this idea of like one of the dangerous signs of totalitarianism might be close is what he called this aestheticization of politics, of when it no longer becomes about the, the issues at hand, but it becomes about being the right thing or being the right person or doing or in, in accordance to some grand ideal of some kind. Um, and so I think a lot of people, you know, in terms of like, you know, them not debating, they hear a political issue and go, oh, well, I'm a Republican, so I have this take. And regardless of whether or not that's consistent of like what the Republican Party actually wants or the values they put forth, it doesn't matter because, you know, it's, well, this is what the Republicans are doing. I kind of feel like Trump did that to the Republican Party. Like mm -hmm. the normal, very moralizing, evangelical Christian Republican Party got faced with this womanizing, several times divorced Trump. And, <laughs> but he was Republican. So we fought, you know, uh, so fall in line because identify as Republican. And I think that's been a lot that's been going down is there's less community identification and more like of this like political identification of like factions that people are willing to defend for the sake of having factions. I think I would add to that that a lot of people are not willing to actually hear people out. Like, Luigi, you mentioned this. You said, I want to have you guys on because I want to hear your thoughts. I think a lot of people walk into situations and, and they're looking for a confirmation bias. They're looking for, okay, Josh and I wildly disagree. I don't care why we disagree. I'm just not going to listen. I, I And if I do interact with this person, then what my goal is to do is to berate and override and kind of drive. And I think that when people approach it with that type of a mentality, you don't actually hear people out. Like it, it's kind of the more you, you hear what is being said, but you're not listening and trying to understand. Like Josh and I are never going to agree. Like, and we've accepted that. What we have agree, like the, the social contract, if you will, and what drives our podcast right. is I agree to be civil. And, and that's not to say we won't be heated, but we are going to show each other human respect and decency. And we alternate talking and we don't just override each other. We're not there making faces when the other person's saying something like, even if you're just kind of sitting there, you know, still cold, sullen, <laughs> like in the darkness, like you're still listening respectfully. And then you disagree. And then because Josh did that to me or Marcella did that to me, then I'll do that to them. And it's kind of this give and take. If you don't have people willing to come to that point, I, I, I guess to me that would be a driving factor in why we don't have more of this discourse. First of all, all the points you made were, I think, spot on in terms of that identity now. It's no longer the issues that matter. It's it's what is what is important now, uh, what is the you know flavor of the month or flavor of the of the day. And you know, it's funny what you said as well, is and I and I can relate it between you and Josh. I have a friend of mine that's that always watches the show, a very good friend of mine. We've been friends for years, and he basically, you know, brings me to task for everything. <laughs> but respectfully, you know, in the comments and, and that's and then after the show, but just to tell you, you know, after the show, he always texts me and says, Hey bro, I hope I wasn't too rough on you. I'm like, no, you weren't. We disagreed. <laughs> you were completely, you were a gentleman, you made your points, some of them right, and you know what? You made me look at something differently. So how I can't even tell you guys how many times that's happened to me, especially since I started this podcast and tonight is 63 about, you know what? I changed my, my views on how I see something. And then I'm like, wow, it's just if everybody changed their mind on one thing by just speaking to somebody that sees things or maybe has um, experienced life differently or looks at things completely differently, maybe then you'll change your mind just on one matter. 
but it, it's the I, I believe and maybe I'm again I'm off is the failure to do so and why these people are just sticking like again like Josh said uh, Josh said um, tongue twister there uh, why do we have to stick to that identity and so so it leads me to direct thing and and I'm seeing this in the states and I'm see, and again you'll add to to this the current situation in, in the states and I could talk about Canada but. I don't recall, I'm 47 years old soon, I don't recall another time where people were so divided because of politics. And and even, and I've noticed also politicians, maybe again, um, I'm, just because maybe I'm looking at it more in detail or, or, or minute or on a micro, micro level, but even politicians, the way they're nasty with each other, and you see this actual hatred between each other, which spills on to the regular person. Right, because if they're talking like that amongst each other, and if you believe in this, you're this, and if my prime minister is saying this, especially during the freedom convoy, then yeah, everybody that supported us must be a national, a white nationalist, or must be a racist. Or so, uh, uh, my my question is like, what are you guys seeing? Like, do do what do you think? I mean, has this has this been lately the 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 most heated you've ever seen it? And I'm 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 kind of worried. I really am. In some instances. For sure. There was, at least for the United States, you know, during, you know, from what we, I guess the people, people are calling them the aughts now, you know, from 2000 to 2010, the initial war on terror in America's venture into Afghanistan and Iraq provided like a very like uh, central ground for like a lot of politicians. Like George W. Bush was elected for his second term with very high favorability and won mm-hmm. a lot most of the country, you know, most of the states. And because, you know, how we're Americans, we like a wartime president. But in part, there was still this unifying kind of objective for the nation to undertake. And I feel like a lot of countries have gotten a little lost in what they're trying to do at times. It's like, because you look, you know, they look around and ask themselves, okay, what are we trying to do with the government? Why does this thing exist? Why, why, you know, why do we have these all of these bureaucrats, all of these politicians? And at some level, the contradiction answers to that, I think, play into it. Um, but I also think, you know, as we kind of talked about, you know, as we might talk about here on the show of like, as different as populism has become a more and more form of politics on both the left and the right, there's a lot of people who feel discontented and push off by the system and they project that maybe onto different groups, you know, maybe left the right blames the, these people and the left blames these people, but that's also happening as well as, because I do feel like people are under more, you know, you know, economic and social pressures right now as we're trying to reconcile with a lot of, a lot of our own, you know, human history of what we've done to each other, the way we've treated each other in the past, trying to come to terms with that and, you know, get that set and they like not and move past kind of even the propaganda that our own countries push, you know, put out about how they came to be and how they treated people, you know, and stack on top of all of that, you know, the digital revolution era of constant communication and the constant, I think, prevalence of politics too. It used to be, you maybe read the newspaper in the morning and maybe you had that one coworker who really kept up with the news or you listened to the broadcasts on your drive into work. <laughs> but now you're on the news getting politics 24 seven and it's invaded almost every aspect of our lives of where we can't escape political debates anymore. Yeah, I think the the digital age that Josh mentioned is is a large factor. I don't know if it's 
actually like objectively more prevalent uh, the what you mentioned Luigi earlier um kind of this this distaste for one another this this vitriol hatred that we see or if we're just more aware of it now right because before you didn't you you didn't have senators and Congress people on Twitter, where that vitriol hatred was on their own terms. Like it might have happened on the media if they have, you know, if something broke out at a town hall or something like that. But as we are able to almost intrude more into each other's lives, right? Like anybody can do a podcast, anybody can have an opinion on the internet, for better or for worse. I, I would say that it, it's it probably at least feels that way. Although I, I would question, do the politicians actually hate each other? Because I, I really feel like there's, a, at least in American politics, there's a very large portion that is political theater where, where they, they, they want to stay in power that's, and they have that in common. So they, they, they other the sides and they go after each other so that their bases vote for them. And then, you know, they're, vo- they're, they're unanimously agreeing to give themselves raises and they're going out to these places out, you know, and there's a lot of hypocrisy in the way that they enact a law for us, but not, you know, they write themselves out of having to follow specific regulations. So I, I really do question whether or not that's there or whether they've just really amped up the, the theater there. But I, I really think what Josh mentioned was kind of hitting the nail on the head that yeah. it, it's more prevalent because it's everywhere. It's in your pocket. I think Josh did hit it on the nail there is that now it's it's just everywhere where we can't escape it. Right? If we're in the car, if we were at work, uh, the iPad or whatever is always on. And it, it brings me back. And, um, you know, I'm not sure if you know. Um, we've already had two referendums here and I, I live in the province of Quebec, right? So we've already voted twice to not separate from the rest of Canada. So <laughs> I, I was, yeah, don't, don't get me started on that, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to relate it to my, I'm going to relate it to my story, to what we're talking about now is that I remember the sentiment back then guys, that we literally defined ourselves by which side of the line we were. And, and we had guys, I could tell you husbands and wives, uh, for and against. So it was yes or no, right? That's saying, uh, I'm not going to have sex with you if you vote for uh, no. And right, I, I'll, I'll never forget this. It was, it was a francophone, French Quebec woman that I knew um, and her husband, a, a actually was, I think he was a bilingual uh, Quebecer as well. And they were going to separate for, she was going to, she wanted us to separate and he didn't. And she literally told them, well, you're not having sex with me unless you do it. And, and th- I mean, that's just <laughs> like, imagine. So, and I remember the hatred and I mean, I went to a predominantly English school, so it wasn't, it wasn't an issue for me uh, because the most of us were Anglophones. So we were obviously against uh, separating. Um, but I remember just in general, when we would do sports and mingle with Francophones and just the general distaste, because we automatically knew that we wanted to stay within the Confederation of Canada and that a lot of the Quebecers wanted to um, separate. So I, I remember that time and how ugly it was. And that's why now I guess it, it left a, a you know a little scar on me. And now I'm looking at the way things now, especially here in Canada as well, after what we've gone through with the Freedom Convoy and our idiot prime minister. But that's, again, another story. I don't want to get into that. Um, but so it... <laughs> uh, it, it it leads me to, and now especially with what's happening again in Canada, when when the the NDP, which is the New Democratic Party, and the Liberals, uh, because they have a minority government, they decided to have a, an agreement to to stay in power until the next uh, vote, which is in three years. So I wanted to always ask this question, and I'm happy I'm asking it to to American. Uh, I'd like to have an American perspective here, is because we see it. It's it's just not working here either. I mean, do you ever see? 
our 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 North American system here moving past the two party system, and could that mm-hmm. potentially be better, or is it just what do you see? Do you see the pros and cons to both? I, I think there's pros and cons to both. Um, like, and I think that this is why it's important to have these conversations, right? Because as we have these conversations, those come out. So I know from, forgive me, I don't know the citation off the top of my head, but I know from when we look at, you know, when we've established, when democracies have emerged throughout like the 20th, late 20th century, when they were built around a parliament, they tended to fare better than the, when they were built around the Congress system that the Americans have. Because Parliament allows for you all to have those kind of negotiations where the liberals and the new Democrats can come and say, okay, we don't have the votes to get, you know, to form a government. So we have to make compromises. And so almost that forces some compromises from the actual parliamentarians. Whereas with Congress, they don't have to as much. But a lot of those same deals of like where the new Democrats may, you know, sign with the liberal party or, you know, labor signs with liberal or Mm -hmm. with new Democrats, like, like those happen and like kind of like in the American primaries because because of the way our constitution is shaped with the electoral college, uh, the two party system is almost enshrined in America because of that because you have to get fifty one percent of the votes to become to get uh, the president's office. So if you had four competing parties, no one would ever win. And there's mm. procedurals how how to do that. Congress like appoint, like elects people and like, but no one wants you know it's it's not designed to be that way. And so the way of the the way of the electoral college pushes us towards the two party system of where kind of instead of having like a green party or a labor party, we have you know Bernie Sanders and Ocasio Cortez you know in the Democratic Party, even though if we were in another country they would probably be with the Greens or with Labor, mm-hmm. but we only have the two, so we kind of get these the parties themselves act as the negotiation to form a government in, in a sense, but it doesn't always play out as nicely. <laughs> yeah. Ryan, how do you see that? I, I was trying to look up the exact uh, amendment for the process. If, if one of the, like it, it, let's, let's say there was a contender who was able to pull down enough of those votes. I know there's a process to where it, it then goes to the Congress to vote. If I'm not mistaken, yeah. I find, but I, okay. So see. while you're, while you're looking at that, what, what also yeah. Josh, what I want to, what I just wanted to add as well is that um, the, why the liberals did, that because basically we're pretty much we're like you guys right we just we don't we have one house we have one parliament and that's it we don't have the division between the senate and the and congress we do have a senate but it's really pretty much for sure <laughs> so um basically we are separated in two parties right uh, the conservatives which basically pretty much is the republicans in the states equivalent let's say on terms of the on the right and on the left we have the liberals which is the the democrats so i mean pretty we we could technically say that we're pretty much are a two-party system but you did make me think about something is that you know when you when you really look at it and and again how do you do you agree or disagree with this when you're looking at a, a purely perspective of political you could pretty much only have two sides to politics if if you know what i'm trying to say i mean would you have a, uh would you have a party that is in the middle and then would have the best of both left and right or is it just really we shouldn't just be on the left or we should just be on the right why can't we have a mix of both I mean, very I think, simplistic. Inter- yeah, I think it in part goes back to people's perspectives of politics being like a zero sum game. They they wrap their identity up in things, and so for you to have, like, I know that there's there's a lot of congressional members right now who lean further left, who believe that if they don't get everything that they want, or they, if this bill doesn't go as far, then because of the values they tie to it, it becomes damaging. And so there's a lot of 
I mean, and, and that's not just on the left. That's just what's mm-hmm. been said in the most recent stuff. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that because people tie their identities so closely to politics or policies, or they say that you're hurting X group if you don't give us Y thing, I, I think that it, it really prevents us from reaching that middle ground. Because what Josh said, I, I somewhat agree with, right, that, that maybe parliament negotiates a little bit better but congress is supposed to they're just not so like to me that that's really more of a failure of the people we put into office because they fall in line lockstep with the party or even people like say joe manchin who's um a much more moderate democrat didn't want to go along with some of the big spending stuff aligned himself with the republicans he made the split to where they didn't get the votes that they wanted and so but but it's very rare outside of the last year and a half two years for people to not be falling in line with their party. And so we don't get the middle ground, I mm. think. Same here. We have the same problem, right? We could, I could count on, it's 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 a half a percentage of a percentage of overall of all the votes uh, that anyone that did, did that voted outside of party lines. So it's very, very um, seldom happens. So for, for those, the Canadian viewers or listeners, if you could just give me a quick rundown, okay? Because uh, I always get constantly asked this. And, and if you could just tell me the difference, you know, the what is the electoral college senate um congress what is the difference between between the three and not the difference but what is each and how what role do they play yeah uh josh do you want to take that or you want me to uh yeah so we have our legislative government is split into two different uh, branches of the house and the senate back when america was first founded um you didn't get to vote on the senate the state governors appointed the senators and that's the that's the distinction is that the senate is meant to the people who are senators are meant to represent the interest of their state as a block, basically saying, we're worried about the interest of our state. Whereas the House of Representatives say, you know, I represent people of these, you know, of this you know, kind of area. So I'm worried about this particular geographic mm-hmm. area because the, the entity of states as separate from the federal government is, you know, very important to American political, you know, structuring. So having the Senate be there, as a feature explicitly to represent the interest of the state rather than necessarily of its people is a really interesting balancing idea. That's why we've we've expanded the House representatives. We say, okay, there's more people in America, so we need more representatives to, you know, make sure, you know, no one's representing, you know, several million people. We need to do that again now. We don't ever see anything like that with the Senate. Every okay. state just gets two senators. That's just it. So if we ever add like say Guam um, or Puerto Rico, one of the territories that America holds decides to become a state, they will get assigned two senators, regardless of how many people live there, and they'll get resigned a number uh, assigned a number of representatives based on the number of people that live there as well. Okay. The electoral college is what happens when you take the total number of representatives and total numbers of senators and add them together, which is where we get that 538 from. And that is per House representative vote and per Senate vote, your state gets one electoral college vote. And that's how we actually decide who the president's going to be is everyone votes for their state of which of who they want their electoral college person to, to people to vote for. Mm-hmm. And then the it plays out in that state. And then all, all, you know, whether, and, and this is, there's only a few states of where this is not true, but say Trump, you know, wins a state by 51%, all of the state's votes will count for Trump. There's like three states where that's not true, you know, like Nebraska, Maine, and my Nevada, maybe. Um, but there's like three states of where, that's, where, of where that's not true. So it can be very interesting. You can, ha- you can live in a state 
and like it'd be like a 49-51 election, but then all of the votes for the presidency go to that 51%. Further reinforcing the two fact or the two party yeah. uh, system problem that we have here about this 51% um, issue. So the electoral college basically functions as a way that Americans don't directly elect the president. We elect a group of people who then go cast ballots on our behalf and they elect the president and that's all they do. And they're, and they're just usually normal, like low level politicians. You, Mm -hmm. you, it's a internal party thing. The party selects who they want to be. So it's a, it's a very ceremonial thing. The party picks you as a way of saying, you know, we appreciate your involvement. So go represent us here at the electoral college. That's a great explanation. Oh, I was going to say, so, so the idea behind these, just to kind of give you that, some of that backdrop is, the United States is often incorrectly called a democracy. You know, we we don't directly, like Josh mentioned, we don't directly vote. We we elect people to represent us, and that is true from electing delegates from everything from the Electoral College to the Senate and the House, like Josh was talking about, is exactly correct. And the idea being that we elect people to represent us, in theory, they should be representing our best interests. That's a whole other conversation. But the idea is that you are we, we don't have a, a true every person votes for everything. Instead, we have the elections to have those people represent us. So in theory, the idea behind the Electoral College is that if you have more people in a state like no one's going to come to North Dakota. Like I'm not going to be representative if if there's not a something at stake for those politicians. So the idea was to try and balance, you know, mm-hmm. the people's interests who live in farmlands and rural areas to where they don't get plowed over by, let's say, California, who's got like more citizens than anywhere else. So it's, it's to kind of make sure that if you're the president serving in theory, all of the U.S. citizens, you try to have both campaigns and policies that will balance out at the federal level. Okay. That's interesting. Um, pretty much the same, same thing in Canada, right? We don't directly vote for our prime minister. It's really uh, how many of the parties, uh, right? Mm-hmm. Each party elect their leader and whoever party wins the most votes, obviously in the House of Commons is uh, obviously the governing winning party and the leader of that party becomes the prime minister. So there's one thing that though that we do have in Canada, and I was wondering if we had this on the federal level in the United States, is what we call equalization payments, where... The federal government takes money from all the provinces and then distributes it, hence called the equalization payments, to the less rich provinces. So they take money from, from, you know, so they pay into to it and they give to other, for example, Quebec receives six to seven billion dollars, B with a B, in equalization payments, even mm. though they have the second highest uh, population after Ontario in terms of provinces. So is that like given to, let's say, like your version of our governor or mayor, like uh, to, to then use those funds or, or yeah, how is that used? It's given, yeah, it's given to it's given to the uh, the provincial government that runs that is elected to run uh, Quebec, basically. Huh? Yeah. So, so it, it would like it would like be giving it to the governor of the uh, of each state, for example. Interesting. eh? And that is interesting. <laughs> yeah. The, the, and the answer to that is kind of because hmm. different states pay their citizens there are some states that the citizens positively contribute to the federal budget like where Mm -hmm. like california the the government the federal government makes money off of california the federal government loses money on mississippi like mississippi consumes more federal tax services than we pay in federal taxes as Mm -hmm. mississippi citizens whereas the californian people they do not do that 
And so at some degree, their federal tax dollars come here to Mississippi, you know, and subsidize Mississippi. And that can that plays out like per like state. Republican states tend to draw more money from the federal government than Democratic states do. That can be a little bit of a misnomer, though, because usually what's happening is those Democratic states have social programs that are paying for the service instead of the person engaging in the federal service. So instead of going to federal welfare, then maybe just do state welfare. Um, Whereas Mississippi, you don't have any of those benefits. So you only have what the federal government has for you. There's no, you know, not really any state benefits. You know, know, we just cut our taxes again this year, even, you know, even the revenue has not been doing too hot for Mississippi. Like they're actually one of the great, one of the great American states that's actually losing population over the past 10 years. It also tends to be that usually blue states run by Democrats tend to have much higher taxes. Therefore, mm-hmm. their state area can can do that versus yeah. a lot of the red states tend to be more laissez-faire. It's like, you know what? You get to, to keep that. And so it, there is a whole give and take there. There are pros and cons to both. And what's interesting is that New York and California, I, I know New York for sure, but some of the states post-COVID, they lost a lot. So many citizens that they're act- they were in danger of, if they didn't already, losing seats in the House of Representatives because that's by population. And so their population took such a dip yep. with people shuffling around in the U.S., that and I thought that was fascinating, but so I, I, I uh, it's funny. I talked about this in my last uh, podcast that uh, Quebec was going to lose a seat in the House of Commons because of uh, population uh, movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, with all this this mess going on in this province, uh, people are getting fed up. So I mean, especially the way they treated us during COVID and uh, the high taxes, right? Because we're we're the only province, just to let you know, that has two levels of taxes. Mm-hmm. So we have the federal tax, nine percent. Um, well, on, on purchases, consumer and goods, uh, but also on income tax, we pay the federal and we pay provincial. Hmm. So we're the highest, uh, highest taxed uh, population in North America, actually. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people, but then they passed the law uh, just to make the, the Quebec government happy on the federal level that they were going to pass a law to basically say that, no, we talked about it, even though we're, gonna, we're following the constitution, but Quebec's not going to lose a seat. So it's 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 just amazing, right? Um, how they could get around it. It really is. But no, I found I found it fascinating in terms of the, you know, we, let's not call it equalization payments. But for all intents and purposes, Josh, it really the way you explained it, it is one almost one state subsidizing uh, subsidizing another yeah. state, right? So it's almost kind of kind of the same thing, right? I mean, and it's it's so ironic. Quebec, we we collect the most taxes, but yet we get eight billion dollars in equalization payments from Alberta and out west in Canada. It's just, it's, I don't know, maybe they went to another economic school. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't, I'm not a mathematician. I don't know. Maybe. Um, anyway, that's, that's another thing. Uh, I, I wanted to just uh, change direction a little bit and, and try to go, um, you know, th- we, we, we can't avoid this, this topic. I wanted to get your, your feedback because, I mean, I, I see it maybe in a certain way, but I'd like to get your feedback, guys, in terms of how you guys see this. Everyone and what I'm talking about is is the Ukraine Russia conflict, of course. And I, I wanted to know where would you guys say the United States lies in terms of kind of being responsible for this? And I'm not saying that you know whether or not Putin would have done this anyway, but um, how much of it of their involvement and the history with Russia has has led to where we are today? Hmm. <laughs> and, it definitely it definitely depends on it because like. 
you know, and I, you know, usually representing the more like far like left edge, but this is usually where I find my biggest break with them is because for a lot of people on the really far left, and we're talking like socialist, communist, anarchist left here, usually for a lot of them, um, if there's someone willing to oppose America, they're cool with them. Whether it was Assad in Syria, Putin, you know, China, North Korea, they don't care. They're just like, you don't like America, we like you. And it's like, okay, this is actually really shallow political ideology, but keep telling me it's based on this complicated theory of Marx that you probably totally never read. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and however, there is worth noting, it's because there are examples of like, and even, you know, the American education system is a nice job covering this one up. The Cuban Missile Crisis that happened with mm. the USSR. The story gets told in America that, you know, for whatever reason, Russia got upset and wanted to go put, you know, missiles in Cuba, which is 50 mile, you know, uh, yep. 70-ish kilometers off the coast of Florida. So, like, really close. Mm -hmm. Now, you might say that's, you know, it was an unprompted, you know, aggression by the USSR. But it wasn't. Because JFK had ordered missiles be placed in Turkey, which is on the border of Russia. And so, in response to that, Russia wanted to put missiles in Cuba, saying, well, if you're going to have them in Turkey, we're going to put them in Cuba. And the United States freaks out because they hadn't ever told the public or anyone that there was missiles in Turkey. And then to end the Cuban Missile Crisis... We lie to the USSR that we removed the missiles from Turkey and bet that our intelligence agencies can keep it a secret. And that was JFK's bet to prevent World War III was to lie about what we were actually going to do to the USSR. So that's we're a definitely, story, by the way. Yeah, I did. yeah no, like, like the Cuban Missile Crisis is a fantastic geopolitical it moment. It really of is. Like where like. We don't like we don't even teach the fact that there was missiles in the in Turkey that started it that this was a beginning of a United States aggression that ended up that we now play as this whole defensive close to World War three that was entirely our fault but hmm. it's I think it's really hard because Vladimir Putin is in one sense just this very wealthy billionaire individual who's just running a country has basically a mercenary army through his own private wealth that finances the Russian military has a bunch of loyal people to him. And so it's different geopolitically than the USSR, because I also feel like, you know, America's kind of in a different place. Like we'll fight proxy wars in Syria and different countries. The United States would never put our military we would never invade russia like that's just such an insane like just, yeah the public wouldn't be behind it it's a bad logistical decision and there's just no reason to like that um i i hope if anything that the current crisis has proved that russia really wasn't that much of a threat to begin with throughout the history of provocations and being the antagonist america certainly has its fair share of guilt but i also look at like how nato conducts itself of being like Arming and protecting yourself against a known aggressor isn't provocation. Like whether it was back when he, like back when Putin invaded Georgia, or you know the incursion into Crimea, like or with the uh, Chennai, uh, um, I pronounce that horrifically, um, uh, uh, region um, of like where Putin is like militaristically invaded. Like it seems wrong to condemn countries who are like, well, maybe we should start wanting to protect ourselves more. Maybe we want to join NATO now because Putin's just invading people. Mm -hmm. Because I, I certainly think Putin was in this position of like rebuilding what was left of kind of the fallout of the USSR while trying to maintain the geopolitical stage while also just not being able to keep, compete against America in any realistic sense. Like the Russian economy is pretty small, like $60 billion, roughly it, the sizes of California. 
or yeah. Florida. Like it's it's very Florida. small. We we spend like more than ten times their entire country's their entire country's GDP just on our military. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. their entire country's GDP, more than ten times that for close to thirty years now. So like we are the threat of the world. <laughs> like like America's the person look at me like they have a lot of guns, don't yeah. they? Yes. Yeah. Um, so I get other countries looking at America going, whoa, because like if you talk about the threat of dethroning a president or overthrowing a government from a foreign power, no other country presents as realistic as a military threat as the United States does. So I can understand being from another country, you know, being from Russia, being like, these people are hostile against us. It's worthwhile Mm -hmm. assuming they're going to keep being hostile. I don't think it's a completely faulty like assumption, even if I do think Putin just wants to establish his own empire. Um, But I don't blame a lot of the Russian civilians for still looking at the U.S. and going, you all did a lot of bad things, too. A lot of people suffered at the hands of the United States imperialism throughout the Cold War. Um, The same as they suffered under the Soviets' imperialism, too. And the same as people are suffering under Putin's imperialism right now. Mm Like all imperialism bad. That's the lesson. Not just United States imperialism. <laughs> yeah. All imperialism bad. If you ever invade a country, you're the bad guy. Um, <laughs> if you start the war, you're the bad guy. I think one of the issues here is is just the United States has lost the deterrence that they set up. Like I think that there was a lot of key points that were disastrous, including you know the withdrawal from Afghanistan showed that we did not have our stuff together. I think that that demonstrated that the United States was on the global stage a weaker player, and I think that that came out. I think that I'm not saying that that means that Putin was just like okay, great, but I, I do think that I mean even Trevor Noah, uh, late night talk show comedian, yep. pointed out that he's like say what you will about Donald Trump. Like when you, when you don't know whether the man's going to go full blown nuclear and just crazy because you can't read him, it's a pretty good deterrent. And I, and I think that over the last, I don't know, 20 plus years, we have just, th- there's been a lot of mistakes that have been made, but like specifically the goal should be, we deter, we, we, we don't, we don't want boots on the ground. We don't want war. And what's happening right now, where I think some of the key failures are, is that Biden is not giving a, if you do A, we will respond with B. Mm-hmm. It's been like, if you do A, then like, you know, mess around, find out. And, and, and then like, and then he doesn't do anything. So then you continue to allow this encroachment. And I think that if that is where, you know, say what you will about where the United States is placed. I think that there's a lot of countries that were looking to the United States to either stay out of the way or to actually follow through. And I feel like we kind of just drop the ball on both fronts. And when, like Josh mentioned, if the United States is considered one of the major power players and then they're not doing anything, then it's not a deterrence. Plus, we, we've strung out our, our allies high and dry. Like, we didn't do anything when he invaded Georgia. We didn't do anything when he invaded Crimea. Like, we did small things, but like, we, we really didn't come down on someone who's being that aggressive in a way that was going to deter them, in my opinion. And they're not doing it now, right? So you said you, you let him get away. You, you give him a finger, he'll take the arm. The, the thing is, is that I think... United States and just the, the Western world in general just doesn't understand Russia. And you mentioned, you know, uh, the empire and there's just a way of thinking. I think it's another world. Their way of thinking is is completely different than our, our way of life is completely different than the way they, they view things. And yes, maybe they've become a little bit more Westernized over the years, over the decades. But I still think that they're they're very different than than us. And when I say us, again, the Western world. However, you know, you, you did say you know, imperialism and, you know, I wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't want to be in the United States, you know, because as Canadians, you know, I'll talk, oh, how come the States are not doing anything? Well, guys, you know, you shit on them when they do, don't do nothing and you shit on them when they do something. Well, I mean, they can't do both guys. They yeah. can't do both. Right. And, and another thing is, and listen, I'm not a Trump supporter I, and it's, 
even, but I loved when he just said, you know what? Let's just worry about my shit. I don't know nothing about what's going on in, in, in Russia. I don't let them be man. Think about what's, you know, your own backyard. You know, the, the great Dr. Jordan Peterson says, clean your room first. Then <laughs> you could see, see what, if you want to, you know, walk into someone else's room and tell them what to do in their own room, clean your own room. But if your room is a mess, who are you to say, Hey, you shouldn't be doing this. Hey, you shouldn't be doing that. Right. It's, it's the same thing. Like, you know, our, again, go back to my prime minister saying to India, Oh, I can't believe the way you're treating these people. And or, or, I don't recall what it was. And they say, well, first of all, how did you just treat the, 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 the freedom convoy? Are you kidding? And you're, you're going to tell me how I've treated my people in terms of how they're protesting and all that. Take care of your own backyard. So I, I think uh, it's, it's that damned if you do, damned if you don't, especially when it comes to the United States, because I, we, everyone knows it's the greatest military power in the world. But guys, imagine if you guys would have got involved in every single conflict in the world. I mean, it, it'll never end. It'll never, it's perpetual conflict, perpetual war, perpetual, even though there's obviously a lot of people that would love that because it'd be multi, <laughs> multi-billionaires. Mean, Henry Kissinger is still alive and is actively getting a hard on hearing this conversation. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And Henry Kissinger goes, perpetual war. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I sure. think that there, there's, there's something to be said though, and, and this will bring us, I, I think this is what might connect international with where we're at as a nation. I think that when we don't have an international goal, like a, a war, like it's, a, you know, Josh, you mentioned Bush had a lot of approval from both sides. We were in a time of crisis, right? And so when you have an external enemy, you can look to, you can unify the people. And I think that when you don't have that, we either go looking for it or we wind up dividing amongst ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. I, I feel like maybe that's another contributing factor as to why we, one of the reasons at least as to why we are so pitted against each other so heavily is because we don't have this unifying goal there there's not like hey bigger picture here we got a war going or well there wasn't anyway and and so we still have it but i mean i I think that that definitely leads to people looking for fights to pick yeah i think the the idea of the the losing the bigger picture because i know we've used you know war like as an example here and like obviously you know no one wants to be in a state where like where we like have to go to war even though i broke with most people and i actually thought the united states should should uh still and i maintain this position still much more directly intervene even if that took boots on the ground in ukraine mm-hmm. because to me the, this is just watching poland getting invaded as if i was in 19 mm-hmm. like uh 39 like there's to, to me this is no different this is just mm-hmm. uh, a dictator trying to take over more more territory and is willing to kill as many people as it takes to get there so let's just go ahead and get it over with like <laughs> this is what it's gonna be let's just go ahead and get it over with um, why wait around? Like, but it, it does fall in, into that position of a lot of the times it's, it's really easy to say, you know, we don't want to be, you know, this thing where we're opposing, you know, the Soviets, we're opposing, you know, the port, you know, Portuguese influence over, you know, this part of, you know, the world or Spain's influence over this part of the world, mm-hmm. with the, you know, the Spanish, you know, American war. I think all of that, like, is there, but what I think and what may be necessary for a better kind of imagination of politics is because even when we think about elections, we fall into that. The it's it's not about building a better government. We're building a better society. It's about oh, we got to beat the other guy in the election. Mm. Just that shift alone from oh, hey, we need to come together and figure out what's best for us versus oh, I need to beat the other guy in the election. That shift alone makes the people who you should be collaborating with trying to build and you know brainstorm with and build ideas with and collaborate with has now become your opponent 
rather than someone you're supposed to be working alongside to find solutions to problems that you all face. And it's kind of even a global problem. Like there are problems that we as a global collective of humanity all face. And for whatever reason, we can't like seem to like get on like board with it, even though we have the technology or science to make it possible nowadays. But it's like, oh, this like, oh, this malaria drug would save like literal tens of millions of people. No, let's just like not produce enough of it or not just give it away because we can make it like candy. And it's just like we have the means to do great things and we can send people to space and we can build the incredible bridges and buildings and make technology beyond our wildest imagination. Yet we're so just concerned about beating the other guy rather than actually trying to build something. And I think on top of that, you've got politicians who are so concerned with staying in power and having that power that say for like right now, the Democrats have the president, they have the House, and they have the Senate, which means they should be able to pass this legislation. Like, as long as they have their 50, and then they add Kamala Harris as the tiebreaker, they should be able to pump stuff out. But I, this is not the only reason they're not doing this stuff. But I, I do believe that politicians like to set up a straw man on the other side when they're in power, so they have someone to blame. Midterms are coming up. They don't want to pass... What have we had of substance that was anything other than a congressional raise uh, since Obamacare? I mean, we passed some 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 checks for COVID relief, but like outside of that, our, our Congress is just kind of sitting there, and then they wait until elections come up, and they say, "Ah, yes, if it weren't for the minority party and in, in charge, you know, then, then we'd be able to get this stuff done." I feel like, in addition to what Josh was saying, the people who are supposed to be making that change are ensuring that they don't do anything that might be considered harmful to them when it comes to election time because they want that yeah. power. I saw this this interesting thing. I, I, I don't recall who said it. And their approach of how they would handle Putin and Russia is sort of like, let's treat him like the friend next door. Sort of like, hey, you know what? We've had hundreds of years of fighting. Let's put all this hatred aside and let's, how about you come into NATO? <laughs> and and how about you? You know, let's let's put all and let's just try to work together again to add on to what Josh was saying. And give me a second here, just to try to to live this utopian this thing because I always say that we do live right now in in terms of civilization and history. Uh, you know, albeit yes, we've gone through COVID, but right now is the safest that we've ever been, uh, the richest that we've ever been in terms of health and and in terms of solving problems for health issues. And, and having an abundance of food, and uh, there's hardly any scarcity of food and water, on globally, I'm saying, and globally. So we do have this, this capacity to say, guys, we have this, we live in, right now, I know some countries will disagree, but we have this capacity to basically solve all the ills of the world. <laughs> and we just choose not to. <laughs> we just choose not to. You know, and I know people are probably just going to laugh at me and, and, you know, but, but guys, we do, we, we do technically do have it, right? It's the same thing. Like, you know, we had enough um, vaccines to, to, to basically vaccinate the entire world, but you had third world countries that weren't getting anything because they couldn't afford it. And, and still and, not. And still not exactly. And Pfizer, I, I can't make it. That's a couple of trillion dollars. I'm going to lose in, in benefits, you know? <laughs> Jesus Christ, man, to stick in the government, let me buy them for them and I'll send it to them. I don't know. Guys, is, is it just me? I mean, we still don't have the capacity to look at it again, like Josh, on a global sense here. Guys, it's not us against each other. It's us against the world. We need to get humanity uh, sustain itself and continue on for hundreds and thousands of years. And we I have that capacity. Sorry, jo uh, Ryan, go ahead. No, no, that's okay. Um, I, I've 
I think one of the the complicating factors here, and you, I think you touched on this a little bit, is we don't necessarily, you said we don't necessarily know what's going on, what's going through their minds. I, I think that there is a value system through which everyone makes their decisions. And you, you can do this on a micro or macro level. Mm-hmm. So on, on the more micro level for the United States, Republicans, Democrats, leftists, Libertarians, they have certain value systems and they're not going to come together if that value system is going to be violated in the process. And I think that that divides mm-hmm. United States versus other nations. Like, I, I think that one of the major negotiating issues we've had is we've threatened Putin. Like, when, when we did threaten Putin, we threatened him with things that, if you look at what his situation is, I don't think it matters to him. It's like, okay, great. Like, I'm, I'm an oligarch, I'm a dictator. I don't care if I send my bodies to war. Why are you threatening me with this <laughs> thing? It doesn't phase them. So I think that where the not necessarily the 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 realism versus utopianism, but I think when we're trying to get everyone to come together, I, I feel like it's predicated on this idea that we all have the same values, and, and we don't because when you look at Western versus Eastern, we value different things on the hierarchy of our value scale. Um, if you're looking at free world versus dictator, they value different things, right? Like probably mm-hmm. more, even more power than you know we criticize our politicians for for liking here. I, I feel like if we don't get people on a universal value system, which quite frankly, in my opinion, will never happen. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the major barriers, right? Because even let's look at United States. We're like, okay, Biden is letting the greatest influx of illegal immigrants in the United States, and they're giving them all these things. And we, we, you know, and then the, they point to we've got veterans who are homeless, but like, you know, we're we're dealing with this. So when when their value system is, let's say, veterans versus more immigrants um, coming in illegally, and they're not equally enforcing the law then the people feel that their value system has been violated and they become angry at their government. They apply pressure, they vote them out. And I think that that's going to continue to prevent on a globalistic scale that from ever coming to fruition as nice as it would be to just be like, boom, like we, we fixed all of this. Yeah. I actually think it's one of the contradictions of kind of the modern world that, you know, if you look at the idea of what liberalism proclaims and the idea of egalitarianism and that, you know, equity, you know, equality and, you know, and that people and that we want, you know, everyone to have equal rights. These are all just vague, empty gestures from our governments, mm-hmm. literally since the day our governments got started, like less than like 5% of the population of America could vote when America was first orig- you know, originated as a country. You had to own a, a chunk of land, had to be of, of decent size, and you had to have a business on that land. So you couldn't even, just, it, like being a homeowner, owning land wasn't enough. You had to be a business person to vote in early America. Mm-hmm. You literally had to have property that generated enough revenue new. And that was the only way you got to vote. So it was purely just about the market capitalism and forming a government about market capitalism and creating a system of representation through that. It was about a bunch of aristocratic elites like George Washington and friends who didn't want to pay the crown tax anymore and decided to have a revolution. But the political power system who was in charge here in America, sans paying the, the British their taxes, was the same. There was even a lot of people who supported the crown against the American Revolution, but they were personal friends of George Washington. So they got to keep all of their land, like millions of acres of land in Maine, that they just got to keep because they were friends with George Washington while we seized land from other people who supported the British Empire. And so I think it's like really inconsistent. Like people say, you know, okay, we you know, we don't care if people are coming in to the border illegally because they're humans, they want to come here and work. Uh, we'll take them. Like a lot of people don't want to work. Like, Hey, if they want to come here and work, like we got a lot of people who don't want to work. So he's sure. Like, sure. Like, come on. Like we need the help. Uh, We're like, well, like we'll we'll always welcome more friends, but then 
people hear politicians say that, but then they say, well, but then there's all these homeless people that we're not taking care of. And so it's like the statements of actually valuing human life aren't aren't consistent. And I think that undermines it. So when a politician comes and say, you know, I'm doing this because human beings matter and human life matters, you know, at an irreducible level. And then they say that they're presenting this policy on that behalf, but then they let kids go hungry or, or veterans yeah. sleep. And then it's like, so no, you don't actually believe that every human life values. You're just propagating these people up for political motives. And I think if we had a political party or had a good, big enough political movement that said, you know, and was authentic in that, you know, this is a human being, therefore that life values, so we shall intervene to protect that life. And something was consistent to that. I think people could uh, buy into it more because when they look at the failures of, you know, neoliberalism in America and capitalism, they go, oh, this killed a whole bunch of people. And they look at Stalinism and go, well, oh, this killed a whole bunch of people, but it did it a different way. They might be tempted to fall back towards Mm -hmm. Stalinism, towards Nazism type things, because, you know, we're not necessarily the good guys still yet either. There's still a lot of a lot of innocent blood on America's hand throughout the world, throughout the kids who mine and the like, the like this, you know, the children who are enslaved in the Congo to mine min- minerals for our smartphones. And I think if we could be more consistent at a global level, we might actually get that um, revolution Ryan thinks is impossible. Yeah, um, <laughs> well, I, 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 yeah I, tend, I tend to agree with them. So basically, in a nutshell, what you're saying, you know, what I, I, again, I love the insight you guys are giving, and I just came up with a conclusion. Unfortunately, what you're telling me is that as long as this human um, hierarchy of values. I'll value something different than Ryan and Josh. As long as that exists, guys, and let's face it, it will always exist, then the global problems will not be solved because there's always going to be someone to say, hey, uh, that immigrant is more important than that military, that vet that's starving or uh, that homeless person. And and the three of us could have three different points of view. So as long as that continues, you know, that, that will always be there. There will always be a high hierarchy of value systems, right? What we believe in or what we value more. So as long as that exists, I think it's going to be pretty tough. I think it's tough, especially if you're looking at it from almost like a benevolent dictator type of a perspective, Mm. right? Because like a lot of the politicians like Trudeau, um, Boris Johnson, like uh, even Biden, right? Like they've been talking more about the Great Reset. Like let's talk about more globalism. And my issue with globalism or or one of the many is that it intertwines us not to where we get the, the richness and the cultural diversity that, you know, the United States was supposed to be founding itself on, but we get get two you're basically trying to have a kingdom of the world mm-hmm. and and there is you're you're always going to have these different sections in that case I, I don't i think we just shift our problems right and we now have elites we have like there's always going to be someone who benefits and that's why they're in favor of it and i think that if you're looking at it from we need a benevolent dictator just make all this stuff go away as opposed to even look at it from a more micro scale united states you have your counties you've got your local electors who are supposed to have more power states have a little bit less federal government because it is not nuanced it's so general it's like a chisel or like a big mallet trying to be delicate if i feel like if we apply that same principle to the global specter it's never going to happen right it's like the federal government Mm -hmm. trying to fix issues in the small community as opposed to if like you mentioned everyone cleans their own room right you Mm -hmm. you you elect people who are going to be able to actually take care of that and and that's where i think as long as nationalism is not ethno-nationalism right like it's 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 the it's the protection of the nation, but not exclusionary based off of the race where we get the racism and all of that. As long as you have a leader who is looking at those things and collectively they kind of connect, maybe you'd get a little bit closer. 
I think what you're saying though, with more of the benevolent single dictator, I, I don't, I don't see personally where that would come about without, <laughs> without resetting um, human yeah. nature and just forcing everyone to have the same value system. Let's let's not use that word reset, <laughs> <laughs> please, <laughs> especially with great preceding it, uh, <laughs> um, guys. I wanted to uh, see because you see, I, I don't, I I want to. This is the last topic I wanted to cover with you guys. And I've always wanted to ask and get, again, an American perspective. And now we talked about values and human life. And I don't think that anyone could question how everybody, well, maybe we can actually, but argue the value of a human life and that human's life right to healthcare. So I wanted to ask here, two Americans, guys, coming from obviously Canada, where we have uh, healthcare, why can't your fucking country... It, it, guys, it, I, I need to know why. Why is that? There is no solution to give your 350, 355 million Americans universal health care. I just, I can't understand it, guys. How could politicians argue for or against it, guys? It's a human. It, it doesn't make sense how much money I I hear stories. I was in the hospital and it cost me this much to deliver a baby. I don't. I, I can't comprehend this, guys. It's it's a basic human right. I need to understand. Can you please help me? <laughs> it makes a lot of money. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I guess um, yeah. I guess that's yeah. I mean, like I'm sure, like and Ryan might like have like you know concerns like federalization and the ability because you know can look at like different like federal programs, but then we can also look at you know Medicare, and Medicaid are the cheapest healthcare providers you know, in America, in, in the United States, like, mm -hmm. and if you look at the spending, if you take the, how much our private citizens spend and how much our government spends, like state and local, all of our governments and all the private mm -hmm. citizens, we spend more per capita than Canadians do. So like we, we're spending like 10, 11, $12,000 per citizen per year on healthcare and Canada's spending like six, $8,000. Mm -hmm. And we have a worse healthcare system. We are paying more for worse. It's incredible. But because, you know, even if you think about just having the health insurance market, the federal government, if there was a universal healthcare system, would not have to run advertisements to compete against other insurance companies, mm -hmm. would not have to rent buildings to house insurance, you know, agents to compete against the other insurance companies. And we wouldn't have as many, you know, there's, there are more bureaucrats in, in American healthcare than there are like Canadian or British healthcare as well. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those bureaucrats are health insurance companies who, by the way, if you, not even the money, sometimes if the, the health insurance, your, your doctor can be like, this patient needs this. And then your health insurance company can just be like, no, we're not going to cover that. And then yeah. decide to make you pay the full price for it. Mm -hmm. And so the, the doctors aren't even the ones getting to make actual medical decisions. Um, but it's whether or not it's going to be financially suitable enough for the insurance company is whether or not your insurance covers your surgery versus whether or not you actually need it sometimes. And that's just, I mean, I don't know. Um, I, I can I can somewhat understand the concerns of like federalism or understand why Amer like other Americans have those concerns, but we have a ton of federal programs that are a lot more efficient than a lot of our private sector programs. And healthcare costs seems to be in most of Europe and you know the world they seem to have this down much cheaper and better than we do. So I, I'm just as confused. We seem I, to be very much so shooting ourselves in the foot here, like. Just yeah, just before Ryan, uh, before Ryan uh, delves in here, just to add to what Josh was saying, I mean, how honestly, guys, how difficult can it be? I mean, we just here at Quebec, we know we go to a clinic, we go to a hospital, 
and it's taken care of. We give our Medicare card, we see, and then the government pays the doctor and whoever saw me for my visit, and that's it, right? Everything uh, on on pretty much everything is covered. And I, I don't understand. And you said in terms of the cost that the money that you're spending already, why can't that just be on hospitals that are not there? So basically, what you're saying is that it's politics and it's capitalism because it's too much of a money maker. To to an extent. Um, so I. I agree. We just got Ryan to agree that capitalism is the problem. Red <laughs> no, alert, red no, alert. No, hold on, hold on. Red alert. To an I extent. Was, I have that. Edit, edit. <laughs> what what I was partially agreeing that capitalism is the is, problem. It, no. <laughs> okay. So here here's where I think the logical fallacies come into play is is to say that we take the issues that we know. And I can agree, these are issues, right? Like it's too expensive takes too long, right? Like it's complicated. It falls a lot on bureaucracy. It's terrible that the insurance companies are doing those types of things. But again, it does boil back down to capitalism. That's what I agree to is a driving factor is capitalism. Okay. What, what I think becomes fallacious when we say, okay, so we can take what functions in, you know, we have 10 times, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, the amount of population in, in the U.S. to Canada. We have a little over 300 yeah. million. We've got about 30 million. Yeah. Um, you, you've got, you know, Scandinavian countries where this happens. They are significantly smaller than that. So to say that these principles work here and then to say that they will work in the United States doesn't necessarily directly translate We've got a lot more people. There's a lot more issues, a lot more nuance. The questions of how do we fund this? How do we how do we do all of this? Like that that is that is a question that would have to be answered. I also think that when we're looking at what is the federal answer, right? Because if we want socialized healthcare, Medicare, Medicaid, that that was our answer, and it, it was it was not good. In fact, it, it couldn't compete. People didn't want it if they could afford not to because mm. it was so of service and when when you have this and you have to make it available to all you you more often than not see that you pull the quality down you don't necessarily just automatically elevate the quality there, there were some in the bottom percentage who already had worse health care and there's there, there's did get pulled up but you know obama's statement of you'll get to keep your doctor was rated as the lie of the year by the washington post because people were not able to keep the doctors they wanted and as americans we like to be able to pick and choose where can we go. And if you look at a lot of the elective surgeries or the major surgeries in socialized countries, people are coming down to America to get those because they're like, oh, I need a bypass surgery or heart surgery where the weight line is out the door. Yeah. The, you know, cancer, all of that. It might be hella expensive, but there's not a wait list, which, you know, you have to pick your I pros would, and cons. I would turn though and say the expense functions as a wait list because I certainly know, or even here teaching, I have students who tell me, oh, yeah, I would go to the doctor, but you know, I can't afford to go to the doctor. Mm. So while there's not a wait list, you mm. essentially have a wait list internally. It's like, oh, I have to save up enough money until I'm able to go to the doctor. There's, there's the barrier, uh, right? And, and Yeah, and this is where I think you know, it, it's pros and cons, and, and this is why I think it becomes so complicated and so nuanced because we, you know, the other thing is America foots the bill as far as the intellectual property development of these life-saving medications because capitalism drives that. And that's where I understand that, you know, the companies are motivated to not have to pay insurance, and that's a negative to capitalism. The positive, though, is if you make good decisions, you come up with good ideas, you are incentivized to make those available, albeit, I know Josh is going to go here, for, in, at times, inordinate amounts of money, which is why I think you need to have certain regulations, but America does lead the world as one of the countries that is developing the medications that goes out to other people. So Canada and these other Nordic nations benefit from 
innovation that takes place under the capitalism of the United States, more so than we do, of course. But if we became socialized, I would argue that would go away. And the quality overall is going to decrease a little bit as a result. Here's where I'm torn. Okay, guys, and I'm going to give you an example. At times when I'm in the waiting room in a hospital and I'm waiting for a long time, I just think to myself, like, damn it, I wish I was American. <laughs> you know, I, I do. Okay. So, but then I'll give you another example. Then I'm going to put a, I'm going to put a question on the screen and, and we got a question from somebody and I want you guys to answer it, but I'll give you a great example because this one impacted me personally. Um, a few years back, my wife uh, was diagnosed um, with, anyway, that night she's just telling me, Luigi, I'm not seeing well. Um, I see blurry. It was pretty scary. Okay, guys. So we went to the hospital and within, I'd say, now judge me. And I want you again, what you guys think of this within 12 hours, we saw a doctor. We had a brain scan of, um, or sorry, saw her doctor, uh, saw another doctor had an appointment follow-up with a neurologist for a brain scan all within 12 hours, let's say. It was a long freaking 12 hours, but we got all of this done and yep. it didn't cost us a penny. Hmm. And I remember at the time, I'm like, okay, I'm exhausted. I've been here half a day. It was maybe a little bit more than 12 hours, maybe mm -hmm. 14 hours. But I'm like, damn, man, they did a lot. They did a lot. No, they did the brain scan. I'm sorry, because we remember, I remember it was the mm -hmm. worst hour or two of my life uh, waiting yeah. for if they would have found something in her in her brain in terms of a tumor or whatever. Thankfully, it wasn't. And so it just turned out to be an autoimmune issue. And I remember I'm like, holy shit, man. What did we just do in a span of 14 hours? The test that we did. Okay, the system that I've bitched about all my life is not that bad. So, But see, that's when it, it hits you home personally, right, guys? So um, I probably looked at it differently after that, that when, it, when it hit close to home. So... Uh, it can't be that bad. Yes, you'll wait. Maybe the waiting list uh, uh, for an operation that could save your life, maybe you'll end up dying. But I guess that is maybe the price of free social health care. The, the other price you're going to pay, and again, like this is this is where like I agree these these harms exist. Like, you know, if I, if I go to the doctor for that, I'm going to be paying. There's a premium threshold I have to meet before my insurance even kicks in. So I'm paying to retain that on top of having to pay to go until I've met that threshold. So like it, it is a mess. And like and I'm gonna agree with you that that's that's problematic. Um but like you you do pay more in taxes. Like I mean like especially oh, yes. in like the, the Nordic countries it's sometimes up to like 40, 50 percent uh to go into this. So then the question is how much of that do you use? Like do you yeah. do you weigh that and in the United States at least enough people to not have the votes to pass these types of things would agree, I think, that they would prefer to have the choice in the lower taxes. And that that's then the price that we pay. And it sucks yeah. when you can hit the it's hospital good, bills. It, it's a good point, Ryan. That is a very relevant point. How much have I... I speak... My example I gave to you hit me personally, but how many people are going to have to have that close a call and, and get so much care? And, uh, you know, in the, in the life, how much did it really cost me in taxes, right? Yep. In terms of how much I pay. So we've got a question here and we want to get uh, Mario Joffredo uh, says, can they explain Obamacare real quickly? Is that uh, not like our system? So maybe if you could tell me, then I'll tell you whether or not it's. Yeah, it, it's not. Um, Obamacare or the Affordable Health Care Act mm -hmm. did 
It wanted to set up a public option, and it died at the hands of one particular Democratic senator. By public option, that means the the government would become an insurance company, and so you could buy insurance from the government. This was the pipe Mm. dream. This is what they really wanted, to have the government enter as as a market competitor to help drive down costs. They have to compete against the government. Senator Joe Lieberman, whose wife is a healthcare insurance executive company, was the one holdout Democratic vote Obama needed to pass the Affordable Health Care Act with the public option in them. So uh, as a forever reminder, um, thank you, Lieberman, for taking away the public option from the American people because your wife's a healthcare executive. (laughs) Thank you so much. You really represented the American public. I appreciate it. But what it did do was, one, it provided some additional rights for a particular type of health care, like before Obamacare, um, mental health services, so like psychiatric drugs or going to therapy, did not. your insurance company did not have to cover them at all. They could outright reject you for having them. Another thing it did is, since we don't have insurance from birth, you might have to change insurance companies if mm-hmm. you change your job, because usually your insurance is tied to your boss, which is a whole lovely dichotomy that your boss has control over your health, which is a fantastic uh, worker relationship in America. But uh, what it, it did do is it set up like a government, so company it set up like a marketplace where go, where companies could come offer plans and option to people who met certain criterions. And the government would subsidize those healthcare plans to a certain extent to make them more affordable. Um, okay. The Affordable Health Care Act, trying just to get the monthly premium that people are paying for, you know, insurance down lower. But it didn't end up offering any type of single payer system or public option. It improved some aspects of it. It made it fair. Uh, the pre-existing conditions, that's what I was trying to get to. Like if, uh, if you have to switch insurance companies, your rates might go dramatically up if you have you know, pre-existing conditions like asthma or a, you know, a physical, you know, um, you know, any other, like if you have a chronic disease, insurance companies used to be allowed to not uh, kick you out or not allow you to sign up. Basically being like, we know you're going to be too expensive to cover, so you're not allowed to sign up. Wow, okay. Yeah, right? Uh, Obamacare outlawed that practice. Maybe you choose not to get insurance, you know, and you go through your life, but then, you know, you're in your, you know, 50s and 60s, you develop cancer. You know, you shouldn't have to just die because you didn't have insurance before that and you can't afford it. You know, you should be able to get insurance. You know, maybe that's not particularly fair to everyone else in the insurance pool that you're not paying into your part until you absolutely need it. But still, it's a better world. People who decide to start paying and should be allowed to. So it, it improved some of the things, but it really just ever so slightly modified how some things work, set up a couple more bureaucrats here and there in the government agencies, but it didn't set up a solution to where, I mean, the, the, the fundamental solution in America is if you are dying and an active need in medical care, hospitals will treat you. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, they're legally not allowed to turn away someone in need of like, you know, they won't, they're not allowed to let, just sit there and let you watch you die. It's against mm-hmm. the law. What your life looks like after surviving that in terms of the hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of debt you go into, because sometimes you'll be, you know, you get hit by a car. So you go to the um, ICU and well, bam, that's, you know, maybe $50,000 for just the, you're you're just for the emergency room, but then you get transferred to the ICU and you stay in the ICU for the week. And it's going to be like 10, $15,000 every day you're in the ICU. And then there's going to be a whole bunch of other fees related. To, yeah, related in there too. And then your insurance will come in there and be like, okay, you way went with the pasture threshold. So we're going to pay 80% of that, but you're still going to be left with, you know, $200,000, $300,000 in debt. Even when you have insurance, like you stay at the hospital for a couple of weeks, you walk out several hundred thousand dollars in debt. 
even after they pay their 80-90% share because it legitimately can be tens of thousands of dollars per night to stay in, in a hospital depending on where you are in America. Yes, yeah, so, so you see right there that's that there's an example of I just I'll never I'll, I'll never comprehend those numbers. I, yeah, I never, like a like a single x-ray can run you like 3 or 4000 dollars in yeah, a hospital. A single yeah. x-ray. Not even a, not even an MRI or a cat scan just the yeah. x-ray. Um and, and to, several thousand dollars. To me, the problem doesn't necessarily rest with the healthcare system for the portion on the consumer portion so much as it does with why are hospitals charging this much? Or like, and if yeah, you like testing, exactly. you're like, hey, like I can't pay this. You know, why'd you give me an aspirin for twelve thousand dollars? I got a bottle. Like I can't bring my own. And like, <laughs> like there, you know. And so I, I think that there's some regulations and stuff that can be put into place. But here's the 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 government wanted to be your healthcare in that instance, and they ran into some problems. Uh, number one. When I said that Obama said you could keep your doctor, what wound up happening is Obamacare wouldn't cover that doctor. So who were they claiming to help and who did they hurt that overlapped and intersected on the concept of lower class and lower middle class? Because these were the people who they might have had a doctor. And now mm -hmm. if only Obamacare covers it. And they're like, yeah, sorry, you can't use this doctor. You have to choose from the select ones here. Then what you're doing is, is in theory, more people have health care, but if the government's running it for 300 million people, how good is that health care going to be? It wasn't. The other thing that Obamacare tried to do until the Supreme Court threw it out was they tried to make it a tax. So let's say you are a, I don't know, middle, lower class, and, and they want, and, and I'm like, okay, I don't want to pay Obamacare. I've got just enough money. I can stay with my doctor. They were going to tax you. They were going to penalize you for not enrolling. And the Supreme Court said you cannot pass a law that penalizes someone for not doing something. You can tax someone mm. for buying something. You can't tax them for not. And so they had to throw that out. But like that, this is, again, party politics coming to play. The de Democrats are like, ah, Republicans want to keep out, you know, health care. It's like, okay, sure, I can agree. There's a lot of issues with health care. But you can't mostly pinch the people you're claiming to help in this instance and then be like ah oh, it's it's the republicans like it's the, to me the, the issue still remained it might have changed shape it might have shifted slightly i don't think obamacare um or any governmental entity in the united states with so many people is going to have that same quality like canada nordic countries like they, they've got much fewer people there's a little bit more control mm -hmm. it's almost like if your state were running it 300 million people, I think it becomes a little more complicated. Well, yeah, healthcare is run on a provincial level, just to, to, just to let you know. And to really? Answer, yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, healthcare is on a provincial level. So, um, you know, it could be a mess. It's very bu bureaucratic as well. But obviously, for, for I mean, because we, we do have, I mean, for example, my boys have a pediatrician, same one. Um, my wife has a family doctor, and I have a family doctor, the same one. He sucks, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> so, but but just to let you know, I mean, um, you know, it is possible. So, and this is all covered. We don't pay anything extra. Mm -hmm. uh, we obviously pay through taxes and and through the RAMQ, which is uh, deducted from at source on your on your income. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so basically, just to answer, you know, Mario um, Mario's initial question, he 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 goes on to say, uh, "Is that paid in installments?" Those mm -hmm. are crazy. Those are crazy numbers. Actually, <laughs> these, it made me think of a question here. This is a great question. Thanks, Mario, for that making me think. Um, who owns the hospitals in the states? Uh, a lot of different people. Yeah. Okay. The, the Catholic Church owns a lot of them. Um, like the actual proper Catholic Church itself owns a lot of our hospitals. Okay. And that is just because when the hospitals were first getting set up, 
some of the first people who were willing to do it and who would come to these as uh, as Europeans settled, you know, took more and more land away from indigenous people and expanded further and further west. Often it was the Catholics who were first out there and whether it in part it's because of like the religious tradition of offering like last rites and always like offering like food and never locking like the church doors, the they would run a lot of hospitals. And then this is true, you know, in and around the world. So a lot of our hospitals, you know, run by the Catholic Church. Um, a lot of them are independent nonprofit businesses of where it's a so it's a nonprofit, so they don't get taxed as much. Nonprofit. Um, well, yeah, they pay their direct. Yeah, they can pay people as much as they want. They just can't post filings as a corporate entity. It's 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 okay. very not nonprofit. There was a time where the NFL, like our big football thing, that was a nonprofit for a while. <laughs> like, and and you know, to be fair, they did not post any profits. They just paid everyone several million dollars, so there was no money left over okay. at the end of the year to post profits with. So it was a nonprofit. Everyone, let's let's not pay taxes on that money. Just don't worry about it. Hmm. But, so a lot of hospitals are nonprofits too, and there are some kind of chain hospitals, like kind of like McDonald's of hospitals that mm-hmm. set up regionally. Like in Tennessee, we have uh, Tanova and. Um, the people in Morristown, I forget their name because I know Tanova is more common, like more, more parts of like West and middle Tennessee, but like, so, you know, for where I'm from in, in East, East Tennessee, although there were four hospitals within about a 40 minute drive from where I lived and they were owned by two companies. Each hospital owned two of them uh, or each company owned two hospitals and they would go throughout and slowly buy up more and more of the local hospitals, transforming non-for-profit hospitals into for-profit hospitals, which always drives up the prices. Like price hikes goes up like overnight. Like patients were like staying there recovering after surgery and saw their rates go up because corporate ownership switched and they increased p- rates on them overnight. <laughs> so it's, it, it's private companies. Uh, the government doesn't own our hospitals. They give a lot of money to hospitals. Um, a lot of if you go into the ER and you can't afford to pay and you need life saving care, hospitals get to write that off on their taxes. It's tax deductible. Mm-hmm. You don't have to pay as much in taxes yeah. if you do that. But it's just like kind of the rest of our economy of where there is no centralized nationwide. And that's also possible because healthcare insurance is sold within the state it is in, and you can't sell healthcare insurance across state lines. So it. It's a really confusing. So, like, we have like these nationwide companies like Blue Cross Blue Shield or United Healthcare, but you are technically insured by a franchise location within your state that is owned by the national corp. And so that's how they get around that law. Um, Because a lot of people have argued that if we would allow healthcare insurance companies to compete across state lines, it would actually do a lot for healthcare insurance Mm -hmm. uh, prices. It's been a a lot of Republican conservatives have argued um, for that. And of course, we have this, and that is also true for auto. Like uh, we did that for auto insurance. Like auto insurance used to be bound by state, but then we said maybe you can sell it across state lines, and auto insurance got cheaper. So there's reason to believe that would actually work. Okay, but it it, so it's it's capitalism, Josh. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, competition increases, you know, increases, you know, market competitive uh, market competitiveness, and the fundamental principle of insurance is the more people in the pool, the less expensive it is for each individual person. Ergo, universal health care. Um, I mean, right. you got, you got <laughs> well, 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 hold on. The, so the larger the insurance run, pool, that's. Right, but, to me, but the, to me the, the main issue is the governmental run portion. The principle. Yeah. Well, the larger the insurance pool, the cheaper it is for every individual associated. So, a three hundred million, which is true, 
I, I can agree with you on that principle. To me, it's just the federal government does such a shit job running everything that like when they're when they have to tax you for not using it, like if 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 the government option only becomes attractive when they restrict and they because like why why are the people who are influencing legislation passing, you know, they're trading stocks. Why would, why would we want the government who passes laws to then also be having a vested interest in your healthcare? Like, yeah. I, I feel like if it, if it truly remained free market, Joshua principle would stand where I disagree is the universal portion that's government run in the U S I, I don't think it would work for that reason. You know, what's, what's happening right now in Quebec, this new thing because of our healthcare system is, which I think is pretty, pretty, uh, actually a pretty good solution. I mean, we all have healthcare and for those of you that don't want to wait, there's private clinics and you go pay. Mm-hmm. If you could afford it, just do it. You don't want to wait to go. Okay. Yes. It, it, you know, it creates this two tier system, but you know what? It already exists anyways, guys. It does. Come on, face it. it already <laughs> it exists. Does. Come on. Yeah, it does. I, I mean, there are, there are very, there are very private, very fancy hospitals for the elite mm. of America for millionaires and billionaires to go to. They have their own hospitals and own private rehab rehabilitation mm-hmm. clinics and stuff like that. Like, no billionaire is using, you know, the local St. Mary's church in Knoxville, Tennessee. Like that's just not what's going on. It, it kind of comes across as like when I did my undergrad at Tennessee tech, we had the old fitness center and then we paid through a $100 increase in our semesterly tuition to fund the new center over like five years. So I never got to see it. And I paid extra every year. And they were like, Oh, well, you know, for every semester you paid, you'll get a free membership. And I was like, if I'm still in this area in seven years, I have failed. Like that's the problem. But, but, but what happened was they gave the old gym to the athletes and then the other people use the new gym well, the athletes go to the new gym, and so they had this exclusive thing for when they wanted, or else they'd go use the new equipment. And I was like, you know, it's it's kind of like you were just saying with the clinics, like <laughs> they can clog up because they've already paid for it, and if it's too busy or you know they they want something specific, then they can go somewhere else. And and it's it honestly hurts the lower people <laughs> on the totem pole. So just uh, just to say, Mario says uh, thank you. That was very insightful. Thanks, Mario, for the questions and the comments. I appreciate that. Um, so guys. Let me let me uh, say this. I honestly, I'm gonna have to like I always do. I go I go listen back to all my shows. No. I learned a lot tonight, guys. Me first too. of all, I really did. I, I thank you so much. Uh, it was extremely insightful, and um, we, we didn't even get to some points. But I think I think I, <laughs> and, and that's good because we've already gone an hour and a half. We're in Joe Rogan, <laughs> we're in Joe Rogan area here, guys. <laughs> um, so uh, I, 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 that was a great show. I, I, I learned a lot. And yeah, this, thank you for I love us. Yes, yeah, thank you. Thank you for, guys, so tell me, it's going to be in the show notes anyway. Where could yep. um, everybody that's watching or listening uh, as a podcast, where they could find you guys? Uh, they can find us on all platforms, uh, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, Anchor. Uh, we, we've got socials. We've got Twitter, which is pretty lonely. So go follow us there. <laughs> uh, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, it's just at Between the Liars on all of those. And uh we we are live on our YouTube channel uh, most Saturdays, unless uh, too many of us are are traveling or doing something else. But usually noon Central Saturdays, and we we drop a podcast portion of that conversation Mondays. Excellent. So in the show notes, you're gonna have the Twitter handle, you're gonna have the IG handle, uh, the YouTube channel, and the link to Spotify as well. So check that out, guys. Check out their other stuff. There, it's a really, really, really good, guys. Especially if you're into American politics, check them out, guys. Subscribe them. They're a friend to the show, guys. I thank you so much again. It was a pleasure again. Um, so stay off, uh, stay, and we'll we'll have a little chat offline. Thank you, right. everybody, for tuning in, guys. I wish you all 
well uh happy good friday happy easter to all of you those that celebrate and uh, thank you so much and be good to your neighbors and friends please mm. thanks everyone take care well this was a really enjoyable conversation Luigi is a great guy and an even better host. All of his stuff is fantastic. Be sure to check out his channel and go follow him on his social medias. He's a friend of the show. Make sure that uh, you're showing him some love and support like you are for us. And I have linked his podcast and social medias in the description of this episode. So be sure to head over there next. You have no excuse not to. I've made it as easy as possible. <laughs> so be sure to do that. All right, remember, you can find Between the Liars on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, Twitch, and Google Podcasts. Follow us on our social medias to stay updated and stay informed. If you enjoy this show, go give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. Help us hack that algorithm. I want to see us on the top of the charts. All right, I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars. And to add Luigi to this mix, I think we can agree to disagree. Y'all take care. Goodbye for now.